sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. But watch yourselves, or you also may be tempted. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. If anyone thinks they are something when they are not, they deceive themselves. Each one should test their own actions. Then they can take pride in themselves alone without comparing themselves to someone else. For each one should carry their own load. Nevertheless, the one who receives instruction in the word should share all good things with their instructor. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Whoever sows to please their flesh, from the flesh will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the Spirit, from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. See what large letters I use as I write to you with my own hand? Those who want to impress people by means of the flesh are trying to compel you to be circumcised. The only reason they do this is to avoid being persecuted for the cross of Christ. Not even those who are circumcised keep the law, yet they want you to be circumcised that they may boast about your circumcision in the flesh. May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. What counts is the new creation. Peace and mercy to all who follow this rule, to the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you, your spirit, brothers and sisters. Amen. The word of the Lord. Thank God. Kids are invited to Kids Church with Kelly today. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave up his very life for our sins so that he might snatch us out of the grasp of the present evil age, thus acting in accordance with the intention of God and the intention of God our Father. Amen. Amen. This is the opening to Galatians that we've read each week together. Um, and it's, it names, I think, what's a theme throughout the whole letter is this, is this way in which Christ is rescuing us from our sins that our past and what we have done in that is, is locked away in a place that's not even near to us, I think is what uh, Paul says, and, and that Christ is the one who gave up himself in love for us. Another theme from the book of Galatians. And yet what I've been trying to bring out, and, and this is my last chance as this is our last Sunday in the book of Galatians, is this notion of the present evil age. 
that what Paul is articulating to the Galatians isn't just a gospel that frees us from our sins, but is one that sets us in a different plane of existence, a different way of living our lives, a different way of belonging to community, a different way of coming about our salvation. If in the old way we could be assured of the distinctions between circumcised and uncircumcised Jew and Gentile, or in our world, black and white and righteous Christian and unrighteous Christian or Presbyterian and Methodist, if we could be assured of that in the old world, what Christ, what Paul is saying is that through the event that happened in Jesus Christ, those distinctions will no longer have the weight or power of antagonism. Which I think is important. These things are not wiped away. But the antagonism that they're able to bring about between peoples is no longer there. And so Paul, as he said, uh, for neither circumcision nor uncircumcision, these ritual acts by which we might be incorporating into our salvation matters earlier, but works of love, or the Spirit working itself out through love, here at the end he says what matters is new creation. That Paul, writing in his own hand, articulates that new creation is the ground at which things matter now. A new world coming in the midst of the old world is what matters now. And that is, is sort of the core of Galatians. Today, um, there's sort of three things I want to do. One, introduce the sermon, which is always everybody's favorite part of the sermon, I assume. Um, check. Uh, two, uh, walk through the text. Um, and then three, talk about what we might take away from the, the sort of uh, distance from Galatians in the sense of, if, and now that we've walked through it, um, Nine sermons for me, 11 total, David and Shelley filling in one each there. Uh, 11 sermons, what is the fullness of Galatians saying to us? Because I think as we divided this up into those 11 chunks, it's hard to remember that this was one letter read in the context of worship to the entire community. And so the, the ability to, I'm sure they studied it later in the early church, uh, I'm not sure. I guess it's possible that they studied it later in the early church. But the the exhortation that that Paul is bringing, that you're hearing in maybe one or two settings, maybe you get a copy if you're really lucky in the Galatian church, what is it we might take away from that? As I said, my goal isn't to say what might the first century Galatians take away from that. Um, One is if we have access to that, but two... um, We don't have interlopers walking into our congregation advocating circumcision um, so far. Um, uh, But but so the context is off. So what might we take today from that? I've used Bart's line that he wasn't concerned when he wrote his commentary on Romans, what Paul said to the Romans, but what Paul might say to us today. Um, And so that'll be the last part of the sermon. Um, But if you want to shape the sermon... um, come to one of the House of Defiances, because one of the things they brought up this week was um, this tension between the already and not yet that I mentioned in our last sermon. There is the already of what God has done in Jesus Christ, what he's done in, in um, rescuing Israel out of Egypt, that what he's done in, in setting us free, and then there is the not yet, um, the not yet of the fullness of that. And if you fall too far to one end or the other, you can begin to make errors along the way. I think it's hard. Um, I think it's harder today, in my limited frame, to think how how bad could it be falling too hard on the already, because you see the fullness of what God has done. In Paul's context, that meant people stopped working. 
um, and, and thinking that Christ was coming like imminently. Um, in our context, I think, it, I think it makes us work too much um, that we think the fullness of the kingdom can be brought by our own labors. It's just a world that needs a little bit more effort from Christians, a little bit more correction from us, and then justice shall reign. Um, what did it say in this, uh, the reading from Isaiah? That, that uh, I don't know if that one had it. Justice and peace shall kiss if we just work a little bit harder. That if we focus so much on the already, we can begin to, to see that our labors are the ones bringing about this in the world. The other temptation is, is to fall too hard on the not yet, which is to say, um, let's not do anything. Um, God does this all. But in God's wisdom, he set us in this place in which we are free in the present evil age. We are brought about to new creation, and yet we are being still conflicted with the flesh, which he named in the last chapter. And flesh, uh, I tried to say, and sin for Paul too, um, in most instances, I think they're helpful to read with capital letters. They are cosmic principalities and powers which oppose the new work which God is doing through Jesus Christ. They are those which is grappling with the announcement of this new age and trying to turn it back. It, 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 it is, um, uh, we, we talked last week about uh, the analogy of D-Day and the destruction and, and going out to the beach and pretending that was fine, which is uh, a parable I take from Greg Boyd. But just to say that, that we live in the midst of conflict um, can be lost sometimes. Now, for my uh, former Anglicans, Episcopalians, and other mainline denominations, do, do you know what today is? Yeah, well, you, you're not one of those, though. No. Christ the King Sunday, yes. Today is Christ the King Sunday. Or if you're more of the party type, Christian New Year. Because um, this calendar resets, yeah. Uh, the calendar resets with Advent coming up next Sunday. Um, but what I wanted to say is that Advent and Christ the King Sunday capture well this already and not yet. Next Sunday in Advent, we go and uh, we sing O Come, O Come, Emmanuel every Sunday. The music team is fights with me on it, but we do it. Um, and we place ourselves in the place of ransom uh, Israel waiting in exile. We see the not yet very clearly in Advent. We name two things. One, we place ourselves in Israel's spot awaiting the birth of the Messiah, the first coming of Jesus. And you know what many of us miss as we, we go through that season that I try to bring back is we also place ourselves in the place of the church today awaiting the return of Christ, to bring about that already. And so we tell the truth about the disorder and that we are in the not yet. Advent is a season of waiting. And as the, uh, the theologian Karl Barth used to say, the church has no other time but Advent. So Christ the King Sunday is a, um, it's a new uh, Christian holiday, which means it started in the 1920s. Um, is this time in which, uh, so, and the psalm we read for today it captures this well too, is that because of the Spirit, because of what God has done for us, we can stand confidently and look at what the fulfillment of what that might be. We can have days and times, the transfiguration being one of these in the Gospels. And what we see where God reigns in glory and that glory he, he, he attends to bring here. So Christ the King Sunday has an important role in not letting us think we only live in the not yet. 
We only live in our frustrated creation. But in fact, it reminds us that there is an already to this, that we know Christ will reign, that Christ will reign in power, and Christ will set this world to right in the ways in which it is dysfunctional. Last week, we, I used the, um, to say that the kingdom is here in, in the world that lacks access to clean water is surely a mistake uh, where people die from lack of access to clean water. That to say that the kingdom is here in a world of, of um, violence and strife um, and hunger and all those things is, is to misplace things, I think. And perhaps that's why um, the American church maybe has more of a temptation to just roll along with the times, uh, not fully in the already, but not quite aware of the not yet. Um, and, and a bit of this not yet should inspire hope for us. If you think the already, if you think of the virtue of the already is probably love, um, and the virtue of the not yet is hope. Um, and it reminds me of, of Walter Brueggemann's fr- uh, critique of Americans' notion of hope is that we only can think of hope as more of the present, um, not a radically new thing. And so what Shelley read from us from the book of Isaiah is actually a radically new thing. It's not just more of the present. The ox will eat straw is not just more of the present, a more full table, a more robust meal, more of this, but it's something radically altered fundamentally by the act of God. Which is perhaps another tension with the already is we can confuse ourselves into what it actually is um, and not trusting that it's a work of God. The already might work, look differently than, than everything we think might come with it. Um, this is just overlaying the already and not yet over, over the, the story image we've used before, is that we live in that box and the timeline uh, in which we see creation still frustrated is the not yet, the top timeline, um, and the bottom timeline in which we have the benefits of being reconciled and redeemed and for, uh, uh, redeemed through Christ is this already timeline. And so we live in that box in between. Um, and this is the genius, I think, of the New Testament, is that we live in that box. You could imagine, uh, I don't think Christianity would have lasted if you had this way, and the heretics who tried to take either one of these too far didn't last, was to say that all of it's happened, or that all of it hasn't happened. And it's this living between these times that brings about our um, notion of what we're in today. It's the battle in which Paul is naming for us um, so that is the intro for today. I'm trying to think if I have anything else. One of the questions we've been trying to answer so far, which we'll come back to at the end, is, is what is Paul's evangelion? What is Paul's gospel for us? And I think it's helpful on this last Sunday to remember, for Paul, the gospel is the announcement of what God has done in Jesus Christ. It is the announcement of this thing. And so we often think about the gospel as this thing that we um, accept or reject, uh, whereas for Paul, it's something that's been done because of the radical act that God has done in Jesus Christ, and it's something we can trust or faith or believe into, but it's not something that we can go, well, that didn't happen. For Paul, this Evangelion is an announcement. Um, in, 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 in the Roman world, these are announcements from battles or births. Um, they are the announcements of the radical new thing that has happened, um, although if you're a peasant and they're like, new Caesar, here's your announcement, 
You might just go on with your day. Um, but if this announcement is one, and Paul taking this term from sort of the empire cult is a radical act of subversion in itself. It's a different kind of evangelion, and it's one that proclaims that of a crucified Messiah of Israel. But it's not just for Israel, it's for everyone. Uh, and so he announces it in that way. This is, this is Paul's evangelion. And one of the things that, that perhaps has been a driving question for the book of Galatians is what will free us, what will justify us, what will rectify us, what will restore us, what will reconcile us to God, to our neighbor, in our lives. And what the Galatians have, and what we have, I've been trying to propose, is lots of different ways to answer this question. Um, The Galatians have tons of secular cults that are um, pagan cults that sort of surround their world that they may have participated in the past. And they have this new sort of um, oppositional force, these Judaizers coming, saying that, you know, if you circumcise plus Jesus you'll be able to make it through and free, justify, and reconcile yourself through your own work on top of what God has done. And this is the great offense that brings the book of Galatians about. There is no work upon which you can lay what God has done. There is no extra thing. There is no gospel plus, as we talked about. Gospel plus, and and you we can name our own temptations towards that in our own world, but even, I think, more today, we have our own secular cult of gospel plus my own human improvement strategy too, uh, where we adopt all these things foreign to us and try to make ourselves more and more fully realized versions of ourselves, not trusting that the fully realized version of ourselves comes in being crucified with Christ and having him that lives in us. Um, I think part of the reason why we have such a temptation to that is we think we can make it out of life alive, um, uh, that, that we have health and then we have death, and there is no unhealth and decay along the way. Um, And when you live with that frame, you can begin to think, I have unlimited time to fully actualize myself. And instead, I'm at Ball Brewing, and some guy is celebrating his 40th birthday, and I'm like, that guy's old, wait. He is not old, he is my age. He's a young man, he's strong and vigorous, and he can change the world. Um, We live in our own naiveness, about our limits and our strengths. I can't be the only one who's still grateful that, and I, I don't like using these analogies. It's, it's, it's just funny, is that, that Tom Brady still plays football because there's still hope for me to play professional sports. Because <laughs> as long as there's somebody older than me doing it, I can still have hope that, you know, if I really set myself to rights, I might, you know, uh, have a gateway into being a professional baseball player or something like that. Uh, isn't, isn't that true, David? There's a point in a man's life where you just realize that's all gone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For me, it was 16, but I've lived in denial since then. Um, probably 14. Um, and so we live in this way in which we think that we can bring about this self-actualization of ourselves, that death doesn't come for us either. Um, and that allows us to postpone our limits and our aging and our frustrations so that we can see ourselves as somehow escaping this sort of thing, uh, and escaping it alive and fully actualized. Um, and the fully actualized might not be a phrase you're familiar with, but I think it, it makes sense. I'm trying to think if there's um, uh, a better way of phrasing it. Your best life now might be one, but that's too, I think, closed. Uh, um, 
Well, I think productive is one of the ways, I mean, that you will be your fully productive self uh, is another way this sort of shows up in the modern world. Um, the language for that. Uh, this brings us to the text for today. This is the end of Galatians, and Paul brings the people to worship sort of twice in here. Um, brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. Paul, who began with saying that Christ has rescued us from our sins or taken our sins away from us, who has forgiven our sins, is now calling this church to actually be able to live that out, to restore people. And in this way, he says, we carry each other's burdens, and in this way, you fulfill the law of Christ. There's lots of interpretations of this, but I think the most obvious is as Christ carried our burdens and carries our burdens, the church can bring about the fulfillment of that in its own context by carrying each other's burdens. We pick up what bears each other down. And for Paul, in the context of Galatia, there's probably multiple ways in which this plays out. People going back to their temple coats, uh, the people who are leaving, I think one of the things to keep in mind here is there are people leaving Paul's gospel in this congregation. And so his advice at the end of the letter is, hey, when somebody who left my gospel for this other rival gospel comes back, make sure they pay for it and do your dishes for the next. He says, restore them gently. There's not a vindictiveness in returning to the gospel in Paul's language. There is no get your pound of flesh. There is no um, uh, canceling in one way, but there is no ways in which uh, this can live or reign over somebody because Christ has already carried it off. Who are you to lay that burden so hard upon them if it's already been taken away? And, and, and for Paul, this isn't just spiritual. These are material needs as well material ways of helping each other and carrying each other's burdens in the context of this church, that they should do those things and in that way fulfill the law of Christ. Um, the next, uh, if anyone thinks they are something when they are not, they deceive themselves. Um, each one should test their own actions. They can take pride in themselves alone without comparing themselves to someone else, for each one should carry their own loan. Nevertheless, for the one who receives instruction the word, in the word should share all good things with their instructor. Um, the last part is a good one for preachers. Uh, the, the one before that, although it says for the one who receives, um, it's like, got to try harder, uh, which is again opposed to the message of Galatians. Um, try harder. Uh, each one should test their own actions. We had talked about zeal a lot in the book of Galatians and that Paul seems to have this relationship to zeal that says it's not the best thing because zeal tends to, one, overestimate yourself. I'm so on fire for the Lord. Um, if you say, I'm so on fire for the Lord, you're almost uh, immediately implying other people are not. Um, and oftentimes, when somebody says, I'm so on fire for the Lord, they mean nobody else's in my particular form, as if that was the only form in which somebody could be caught into being with the Lord. Um, uh, that's, that's the problem with zeal, right? It brings about that blindness. You have a way of deceiving yourselves. Um, and the second way is, is, is so it makes us poor judges of who we are when we're zealous. Paul uh, also thinks it makes us liable to consuming each other. 
to destroying each other, to tearing each other apart if we're zealous. Um, and so it's for us to, to take measure of ourselves. Without comparing ourselves to someone else, we should carry our own load. Now, there's a bit of a, does Paul contradict himself in four verses here? Um, uh, carry each other's burdens, carry their own load. Um, did anybody else notice that? Merle did. I was like, I hope I don't have to talk about this, and nobody noticed it. But when you point it out, you're stuck with that. Um, uh, carry each other's burdens and carry their own load. Um, it seems like, first off, what Paul is saying in this carry each, own, uh, each other's burdens and carry your own load, that Paul is implying a healthy community, um, which is one that can say, somebody needs help carrying their load. Somebody can carry their own weight here. Um, we would be tempted to make this into a rule on one hand. Everybody should carry the load, no exceptions. Uh, just carry your own load and never ask for anything. Um, there's a bit of a, uh, I think sometimes in the church, we would prefer not to be inconvenienced by anyone we go to church with, which would be an adventure in missing the point. Um, the, the second thing is the, the unhealthy community that then says everything must be carried together and that nobody can, can be able to do this on their own. That's, I think, Paul has in mind healthy people who can interpret this and know what this means, which isn't always carry each other's loads, and it isn't always tell people to do it themselves. The last thing, though, is, is and I think the NIV captures this, is burdens and load. Um, Paul might be alluding to sort of this eschatological, eschatological judgment. You, the end times judgment or the final judgment, you will be carried by the way in which you carry your own self in the world. That is your responsibility. In the midst of the church, we carry each other's loads. But when the end comes, it will be by how we carried our load in particular. And I think what Paul is saying, in the way in which you carry your load in your own particularness is determined by the way in which you help other people carry their loads. It's not one or the other. Um, that, that's uh, Paul's recommendation there on, on sort of finding ourselves in that midst. Um, this is Luther on the back of the bulletin describing a bit of what this means, which I think is a beautiful way to describe it. If there is anything in us, it is not our own. It is a gift of God. But it is a gift of God that it is entirely a debt one owes to love, that is, to the law of Christ. And if it is a debt owed to love, then I must serve others with it, not myself. Thus, my learning is not my own. It belongs to the unlearned, and it is a debt I owe them. My chastity is not my own. It belongs to those who commit sins of the flesh, and I am obliged to serve them through it by offering it to God for them, by sustaining and excusing them, and thus with my respectability, veiling their shame before God and man. Thus my wisdom belongs to the foolish, my power to the oppressed, Thus my wealth belongs to the poor, my righteousness to the sinner. It is with all these qualities that we must stand before God and intervene on behalf of those who do not have them, as though clothed with someone else's garment. But even before men, we must, with the same love, render them service against their detractors and those who are violent towards them. For this is what Christ did for us. Luther's, I think it speaks for itself, but I love the way he turns it, is that 
is that at the end, you would be only offering back what Christ has done for you. And your ability to stand and be with those who lack, you're only responding to the one who took on all your lack and has brought you to a new place. The next section, do not be deceived, God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows, whatever he sows to please the flesh. From there the flesh will reap discussion. Whoever sows to please the spirit, from the spirit will reap eternal life. Um, Paul here is perhaps talking about the freedom he's advocated for the Galatians. That you are now free in Christ. But don't think God will be mocked if you use your freedom to sow in the flesh. If you sow according to the flesh, to that elemental power that distorts and destroys us, you will receive what comes out of that, like to like. And yet if you sow by the Spirit, what you will receive out of that is not destruction, but eternal life. Paul is offering for us the chance not to use our freedom to sow according to our own flesh, as if that will just be lost, but it brings about the destruction in which it is sowing. In the same way, if we have the freedom of the Spirit, we will sow according to that, and that will bring about eternal life. That we invest, and invest is, is not the best language, I guess, because for lots of reasons, but we sow, agriculture, I think, is better to go with than uh, Bitcoin, per se. Um, we sow to reap a harvest. We sow to bring about that day in which God's fullness shall come. So let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time will we reap a harvest if we not to give up. Therefore, as we have the opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially those who belong to the family of believers. This is a little, um, this last part is a little bit of a secret to the New Testament, which is that at least in Paul's imagination, in Paul's gospel, because the church is to be a witness to the new creation that Jesus has enacted, um, that the church is supposed to be this better place on earth, he thinks that the care within the church walls is super important because it magnifies out to the world what we believe is true. Most often, and this is most of my life, what I thought doing good works and doing good things was, was to the exterior world so that they would know we're good. They would somehow grow to trust me because I took acts uh, in time away from my schedule to give it to those who have no regard for the gospel. Paul, and I think a majority of the New Testament, would reverse that equation, which isn't to say, don't let us do good to all people is still true. But the church needs to be the place that witnesses to that we have cared for, loved, nurtured, and supported one another. And so, myself, I've spent time exhausting myself for those outside of the church and at the peril to those inside of the church, believing that's better. When Paul, and I think in in, um, a positive Christian world where Christianity is assumed to be some good, that may not be bad, um, but... What Paul assumes in a majority position where Christians are not in control is that they should invest, uh, gain in each other, serve first here. And so, you know, passages we use for this are the widows um, in the book of Acts, um, but the widows are inside the walls of the community. 
This is not to say that we shouldn't do any good works outside of the church. Let us not tire of doing good to all people. But it is perhaps time for the church to refigure out what does it mean especially to those who belong to the family of believers. And I don't think that means, um, it, it can mean we are bound in Christ across borders in time. Um, but I also think it means in our walls. What does it mean to carry each other's burdens here? Um, my slides are out of order today, but um, there's one thing I want to say. Alinan, Alinan is this Greek word, which I believe is perhaps, if anybody's familiar with the AA Ministry for Families, I think is called Alinan, right? Alinan. Alanon, which means one another, right? I don't know that, but you're it. Yeah, they never explained it to you. But that, I mean, it comes from the New Testament, one another. And this Greek word, one another, occurs a hundred times in the New Testament. I think over 96 verses. It's twice in some verses. Uh, corresponding to love and humility, uh, most often. Corresponding to kisses, twice. Um, kiss one another. Thanks, Paul. Um, uh, and love and humility and unity are the most sort of common instances of it. Uh, and 60 of these are in Paul's writings. 40 of these are in the other portions of the New Testament. But what I mean to say in bringing this up is that Christianity is something, if we are taking it seriously from the biblical lens, is something you can't do if you don't have a one another. You need a one another to do Christianity correctly. Um, this is my own personal frustration where people, I meet people who are like, I'm a Christian, and as if you know me, what's my first question back? Where do you go to church? Which isn't, you know, some scheme to get them to come to Defiance Church. It's to say, who are your one another? Who are the people you are bound with in that? And in seminary, because we were all too cool to go to church, I was the one who went all the time, but that's because of my own performative righteousness or something like that. Don't think I'm holy because I did that. But, the, the, but my seminarian friends, Shelly, no, not a problem, won't do that. Um, my seminarian friends would say, well, my one another is the people I go to trivia with. And we share our lives together there. Because I'm not a nice person, I would say, and where do you baptize the one another? How do you break open the scriptures together with your one another? How is your one of another um, a witness to the reign of God? Not every community is the New Testament one another. That's not to say we shouldn't have other one another's, and particularly other one another's that go to different churches. But the one another language that Paul uses is people bound together in the pattern of the faith in a way that makes a difference in the world, in, in the ways of worship. Um, one another's that aren't bound together in the pattern of worships are good because they are community, but they're not the church, the ecclesia, the called out, which Paul is calling us into. Um, now, this is literally the definition of peach, preaching to the choir. because You guys are all here today, but I thought it was a helpful point nonetheless. Um, the last... Uh, section of Paul's letter, uh, where he writes in his own hands, see what large letters I used to write to you with my own hand. Uh, St. John Christendom thought this was because he had banned handwriting, which 
with those of us with bad handwriting is good news. But the other options are he has an eye issue, which we've alluded to earlier in Galatians. And the second is, is that um, uh, he really wants them to pay, or third option is he really wants them to pay attention to this. He's writing large so that they can see it. Those who want to impress people by the means of the flesh are trying to compel you to be circumcised. The only reason they do this is to avoid being persecuted for the cross of Christ. Not even those who are circumcised keep the law, yet they want to be circumcised that they may boast in your circumcision in the flesh. Paul, again, draws us back into the conflict that brought him to writing to the letter to the Galatians, is that there are people there who are compelling them to take on this ritual form of initiation. These people do two things. One, they don't actually keep the law themselves. We've talked about that the impossibility of keeping the law is perhaps one thing he's alluding to, but the second is these people are adopting pseudo-law. These are the portions we've decided are important from the law, and we're not even going to try and do the whole thing. Um, that, that's what they're teaching. But the second is they want to avoid persecution for the cross of Christ. They want to avoid that persecution that comes. There's one way of reading this, which is a, a meta way of reading Galatians that we left behind, which is that these Christians are not participating in the ritual cults of the world, most likely the ritual imperial cult in Galatia. Jews always had an exception from participating in the ritual imperial cults. So this new religion that's gathering people who aren't Jews, how are they going to say to the world, we too want that exception? It's possible, the teachers are saying, circumcision will be the mark by which we say we are actually becoming Jews, therefore we get the exception from the ritual imperial code. So what Paul is saying here, they're trying to avoid the persecution that comes with saying Christ has set us free and brought us in. We don't need that. But the second is there's this relationship he's talked about back and forth throughout the ancient world in which they want, they're avoiding the cost of this law-free gospel that Paul has on himself. And what he says is they're going to boast about what you are doing to your flesh. The sort of, um, I, I think there's a bit of a darkness there, that they'll boast about the way you've mortified your own flesh to be rescued from the flesh. They boast in what's not theirs to boast in, even if it were true. But Paul says, may I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, which makes a lot of sense today, but I, I always try to think, where I read cross and boast, um, perhaps it's, it's sometimes helpful to put in electric chair or something like that. May I never boast in anything except for the electric chair, that instrument of death of our Lord Jesus Christ. If you don't keep in mind that the cross is a particular dark form of punishment in the ancient world, you can miss that Paul is boasting in something that you wouldn't boast in particularly at this time. Now, 2,000 years later, it makes sense, um, but because we don't crucify any people anymore, um, but in that context where you have seen and heard of crucifixion, to boast in that would be odd. And yet in doing that, Paul is boasting in his own lack, for the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. There is no way of me making this better myself. Neither circumcision nor circumcision means anything. What counts is new creation. What counts is this new seed, this new life coming in the world. And what churches are for Paul, the church in Galatia he's calling to be that, is not one family, Jewish and Christian, or two families, but one family witnessing to the evangelion of what God has done in Jesus Christ. 
That is the new creation he hopes and sees in. When he says he's been crucified to the world, Paul has seen the death of the old cosmos in his unity with Christ. And he is seeing the birth of that new creation at the same time. Peace and mercy to all who follow this rule, to the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear the marks of Jesus. Paul ends with the notion that in his suffering, he has borne this as well. That his life is marked with the suffering that Christ has suffered in that way. And Christ becomes present and fills those things up. At some point, when we have more time, um, this is the last line, the grace of the, our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers and sisters, amen. At some point when we have time, um, Paul's metaphysical, his, his actual idea of union with Christ is, I think, something worth exploring. What does it mean for him to really believe that these things are true unto him? But what is the point of Galatians for us today? What is Galatians saying into our context and world in its fullness? What I think is, it comes back in some sense to that first question. What is it that is sanctifying, redeeming, rectifying, freeing us? What is it that's bringing us out of this present evil age? And first, there's the truth that I think that we exist in a present evil age. As much as most of our technologically advanced lives seek to deny that, we still live in that not yet of that present evil age. And what Paul's announcement to the Galatians and what his announcement is to us is that the mechanisms we might have for trying to make that happen all fail. But it is the faithfulness, the faith of Jesus Christ, in which we have faith in or we trust into, it is that act in unifying with him that we die to the things of this age so that we live with him. And so in the midst of this disorder and this function and this pushback upon us, we are called into new creation, to being a people of the age of the world that is to come to being a witness to what we confess in the creed, the life everlasting, to acknowledge that the planes of existence that we have, where these things will fail us, as Paul points out, but promise and spirit, God's action will not. We are being brought into that. And so that we here on earth, um, and, and God's intention to renew this place, um, to be a people of new creation, are brought into what God has done through his spirit. This is where he reenacts Exodus too, that we are freed from our slaveries and brought into freedom. I think the message for Galatians to us today is how do we as Defiance Church become... Um, participate in what God has done. See, language betrays us here, because I think, how can we do more of that? That's us. How can we faith in Jesus Christ more of us? How can we faith more into what God is doing, has, has done himself? 
This is Kelly's suggestion to me that time is up. Let us pray. I know that was long, um, but it, it felt important to end on a, on a good note. Um, God, you have come and rescued us from the present evil age and forgiven our sins. May we become a community capable of hearing that news, of resting in that news, of becoming the people who can see that we are being pulled from this present evil age and brought into your kingdom. May we, in trusting in the faith and faithfulness of Jesus Christ, of that gospel good news which has nothing to do with us, see in our lives what matters and what counts is not circumcision or uncircumcision or self-actualized or not self-actualized or fullness or emptiness, but what counts is new creation. God, may you be